Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 37, The Scott Cast, Part 3. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And right now, the members are listening to an episode about Celtic farmers. Here's a sample. Most of what the Romans said about the Celts was based on their warrior nature. But war can't feed you and your family. There was more to these people than the one-dimensional picture that the Romans painted for us. So let's dispel some of those myths. You see, the thing is that Celtic life was rural, and consequently everything revolved around their farms. While the Celts were certainly gifted warriors, and were famed for crushing armies and taking territories, they weren't really nomadic. They were, much like most of the world, heavily reliant on agriculture to support their population. For example, when they moved into the Po Valley, they didn't just loot the area and bugger off. They settled and farmed. Farms were important to the Celts. And actually, that knowledge should shed new light on what Caesar said about the British Celts. If you'd like to learn more, you can sign up for membership over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to David, Mary, and Amy for signing up already. Now, as for what we're doing today, we're continuing the Scott cast that was requested by member Ewan. And we're still in the prehistory period. And we're actually now entering 2500 BC. And the first thing that we notice is that tomb and monument building has slowed. In fact, some settlements were even abandoned. And predictably, there was also a decline in agriculture at around this time. I mean, that makes sense, right? If there's a decline in settlements, there's also going to be a decline in cultivating the land. And actually, areas that were cultivated were left fallow and overtaken by woodlands. Now, clearly, there was some sort of recession that happened. But what caused it? Well, we're past the climatic optimum for Scotland that we've been talking about. And now things are getting colder and wetter. So maybe the crops just aren't taking as well as expected, and it's forcing a migration to greener pastures, so to speak. That could have been the cause. And additionally, when the climate changes, it's not just the temperatures that change. It's also the jet streams. And with shifts in jet streams, you get significant changes in weather patterns and whatnot, which could have caused all manner of problems for the early agricultural society. I mean, we're talking about stuff like massive storms. I mean, all sorts of stuff might have been occurring during this climatic transitional period. And at the same time as all of this, there was also a change in burial behaviors. So as people were leaving the area and while certain fields were getting abandoned and whatnot, and they were no longer worrying about building tombs, they were still burying their dead, but it was in different ways. We find cyst graves that were now being used, which are basically large rectangular stone wall and stone-capped graves. And the bodies in these graves were usually placed on their sides in the fetal position, which is a big change from the burial methods of their ancestors. Additionally, we found evidence that the burial sites were now being strewn with flowers, a custom that we roughly continue to follow today. Now, there is a term that we like to use for British prehistory, and it will be the focus of what we're going to be talking about today, the Bronze Age. And we say that this age started in around 2400 BC, but it wasn't like the inhabitants would have seen it that way. They wouldn't have said, oh my god, Heather, we're in the Bronze Age. They were probably too busy trying to stay fed and keep the gods pleased and all that sort of thing. 
but it's useful to us because it's a hard and fast change in the culture that we can date. Now, if there is a change in religion, such as new gods or rituals, or if there is a change in culture, like perhaps going from polygamy to monogamy, that would be much harder for us to date. But finding metal objects, that's handy, and it gives us an easily marked section of time. So, we're in the Bronze Age, but the people in Scotland really wouldn't have seen it that way. That being said, despite the fact that Britain was in the Bronze Age, there's a bit of a lag for Scotland, and metalworking really wouldn't arrive in Scotland for quite a while longer. And when it did happen, the land would have been scoured for copper deposits, so that it could have been combined with Cornish tin, thus enabling the production of bronze. Now, at around this same time, we also would have seen the appearance of beaker culture, and they were called the beaker culture because of the pottery they left behind. Now, these pots typically looked like inverted bells and were often decorated with a twisted cord before they were fired. They're actually quite beautiful to look at. And investigations of residue left on some of these pots in the burial sites have found pollen and some sort of honey-based drink. Now, to me, it sounds a lot like a certain honey-based drink that I'll be enjoying when I do my Anglo-Saxon cooking episode for the members. You know, it sounds like mead. But was it mead? Well, we can't say for certain. It could have been a non-fermented honey drink of some sort. It's one of those things that we just don't know. Now, the appearance of the beaker people has led to all sorts of interesting debates amongst prehistorians. But I mean, really, when you have so little hard evidence to go on, there's bound to be a debate on all manner of things. But the core argument of this debate is actually similar to the one on Celtic migration that we talked about in the members' podcast. There are those who believe that the appearance of the beakers was the result of a physical migration, since they also appear on the continent, the beakers do and whatnot. So they thought there was some sort of invasion or mass migration that brought the beakers physically to Britannia. Opponents of that theory point to the existence of trade, non-migratory cultural spread, and the fact that beakers weren't terribly different from the vessels that were already being made in Britain. They argue that you don't need a mass migration, or even a minor migration, to lead to cultural and technological spread. So were the Beaker people a different people from the early inhabitants of Britain? Reasonable people can argue about it all day and not come to an agreement. But I'm inclined to think that it was just the result of cultural spread from the continent, just like you'll find people in the UK wearing Levi's, and yet there wasn't an American invasion. I mean, sure, there are going to be Americans living in Britain, Several of my members are Americans living in Britain, but there wasn't any sort of invasion that led to people wearing Levi's. It was just cultural spread. Now, anyway, the reason we got onto this tangent is because of metalworking. So what does beaker culture have to do with metalworking? Well, there's a pretty interesting dig site in Wiltshire, which is not too far from Stonehenge. And granted, that's not in Scotland, but it gives us a window into the possible culture that was developing at this period. And like I said in earlier podcasts, when it comes to prehistory, we kind of have to just take what we can get. So it's the burial of a man from beaker culture. Now, beaker burials usually have a few artifacts buried with them. For example, a grave might contain a beaker, or at most two, and dining ware, and that sort of thing. We're looking at a maximum of 10 objects. And actually, these burials were only for people of high status. Your average beaker person, beaker fellow, beakite. Your average beakite didn't get a full beaker burial. So get a load of this grave from 2300 BC. 
Here we have the most lavish beaker burial ever seen in Britain. This guy had five beakers, three copper knives, two full archery kits, 15 flint arrowheads, two gold hair clasps, and a cushion stone. Now, cushion stones were used by metalsmiths at the time, and it's the presence of the cushion stone that hints at why this guy might have had such an incredible burial. There's a good chance that he was a metalworker of some renown, and given that metalsmiths knew the secret of how to blend two metals together, you know, copper and tin, to make a third much more useful metal, and actually much more beautiful metal, he probably would have been seen as incredibly impressive, maybe even magical. And looking at that, it's possible that the introduction of the Bronze Age brought with it a sort of reverence for the people who could work with these materials. But here's the really fun part about this burial. This possible metalworker we're speaking of wasn't from Britannia. He was from the continent. So how did he get there? And how did he communicate with the natives? Did they have a shared language? Was he accorded this lavish burial because he was a foreign dignitary? I mean, when we're looking at that, maybe it wasn't due to his metalworking abilities at all. Or maybe he brought a new technique to the island and was accorded great renown because of it. Like a Prometheus of metalworking. Who knows? But he was a foreigner, and that alone is fascinating, even without all the incredible artifacts in the grave. So the takeaway from all this is that Scotland at this period probably had contact with the continent, just like the inhabitants of England. And this probably led to some cultural and technological changes. And as a result, we've got a spread of beaker culture, and we've got metalworking and whatnot. And it's possible that metalworking was seen as a skill deserving of great renown at this time. It's a thought. And the guy certainly did have a lot of beakers in his grave. Now, as for those beakers and the objects in their grave, they were probably put in there by family or tribal members as a sign of respect. Or maybe the beakers were added because they were something the dead would need in the afterlife. Or maybe it's similar to the modern habit of sharing a final drink by taking a swig and then pouring some on the ground. We just don't know. Anyway, all of this talk is just so we can get an idea of maybe what was going on in Scotland and around this time. So let's get back up to the north. So as the beaker culture spread, the strength of the Orkney culture dissipated. That's not too surprising, right? It's pretty far north, and the climate was cooling down, and we're seeing evidence that there were economic problems that popped up at around this period in history. So of course it might be, you know, disappearing. Meanwhile, you've got another culture that's spreading in the south that's not dealing with the same economic problems, so they're going to be able to spread a lot more efficiently. It all makes sense. But while the beaker culture was spreading, it seems that Scotland was actually, at least initially, quite resistant to the change, and actually just to change in general. For example, it would take Scotland about 700 years longer than England and Wales to adopt bronze working. However, this might have also just been a side effect from the fact that materials were not as abundant in Scotland. I mean, there was copper up there, certainly, but no tin. The tin was found in Cornwall, and only Cornwall, which, as you know, is a pretty long hike from Scotland. And it wasn't like obtaining copper was easy for them either. I mean, once you exhausted the surface copper, you have to dig. And those prehistoric mines were no picnic. For example, the Great Orm Mine in Wales was an enormous copper mine from the Bronze Age. You would think that it would have been dug out using bronze tools since they were the most efficient tools of the time. 
but you would be wrong. Bronze was far too valuable. Antlers and bones were the tools of the trade. And this thing was both massive and deep. I mean, the scale of it is actually really hard to comprehend. I would recommend looking at photos or watching a documentary on it. There's a couple decent documentaries that cover it. So anyways, it's massive and it's very deep. So it would have been dark. Meaning that the miners, many of whom would have been children because kids can get into smaller spaces than adults, would have had to work in absolute darkness since bringing fire into the mine shafts would use up all the available oxygen. Now, of course, this is in Wales, but the people in Scotland would have been no better off than the Welsh. As soon as the surface copper was gone, they would have had to start digging down as far as they could go in the dark. Can you imagine that? Trying to follow a copper vein that you can't see in impossibly claustrophobic conditions, completely in the dark, hoping that you can remember your way out, and working with nothing but a bit of antler or bone. And you might have started this glamorous career at the age of five. An absolute nightmare, right? Now the upside here, and I know this is me being a total Pollyanna because I'm talking about five-year-olds working in impossibly horrible situations underground, but there is an upside. The upside is that because bronze was so prized, and for good reason, it was a very useful metal in addition to its beauty, and because tin was only found in Cornwall, this probably led to an expansion of trade routes. And with the expansion of trade routes came the expansion of Britons on the sea, which, in my opinion, is always a good thing. But it makes sense when you think about it that they want to go by sea, right? I mean, walking all of those ingots all the way from Cornwall would be ridiculous. They certainly would have wanted to take boats. I mean, going by land is just madness. And again, this doesn't sound like cave dwellers, does it? And so with the spread of trade came the spread of technology, religion, and culture. Prosperity began to boom once again in Scotland. And with that came an increase in population. In fact, the Bronze Age population has been theorized of being just below medieval levels. Which makes sense, I suppose, since while the temperatures were cooling, they were still warmer than they are now, and so there was a great deal more arable land at the time. And so with increased trade and whatnot, there would have been increased prosperity and advancements that would allow for larger populations. For example, while stone was still being used for some tools, bronze tools started to become more widely accepted, which made work much more efficient. Take axes, for example. Once the bronze axe started to be used, wood was able to be manipulated with greater levels of effectiveness because of the increased level of control that prehistoric man had with his tools. So life, despite the cooling temperatures and general slow adoption of technology, was still improving in Scotland. And also at around this time, we're seeing a boom in hill farming. And one in particular was built right around this period that we're talking about, and it's out at Lintshire Gutter in Upper Clydesdale. Basically what we're dealing with here is a kind of terraced land of a sort, sitting near the River Clyde. There are a bunch of raised sections of earth, and a house was built on each platform, for a total of 31 houses. So this was actually a pretty big village. And the houses themselves varied in size, but they were generally circular, and some were as large as 29 feet in diameter, so around 660 square feet. But remember, they're still living in one room, so 660 square feet is, well, it's about the size of your average modern studio apartment, so it sounds about right. 
Now these houses would have been walled with bits of wood, like twigs and stuff, and then plastered with mud. And then they would have had thatch roofs. And the people of this village raised cattle and sheep generally, but they also might have had a few crops. But anyway, this is what life was starting to look like in Scotland, with the inhabitants cultivating arable land all over the country, which over time gave the land the agricultural patchwork that defined it actually until the 18th century. And around the same time, yokes also started to appear in Scotland, which of course suggests that animals were now being used to help cultivate the land. So things were moving forward. Now around this period, there were also things called burnt mounds, and these are basically a mystery. Essentially what these things are, are a bunch of burnt and often cracked stones, usually located near water, and sometimes there would be a pit nearby that had been dug and lined with clay. Now some historians theorize that this was basically a field cauldron, since it would be quite some time before bronze would be affordable enough to use it for cauldrons. And the notion is that by filling the clay-lined pit with water and then dropping hot rocks into it, you can get the water boiling and then chuck some meat into the pit and cook it that way. But I don't really buy it. It seems like a tough way to cook meat when there's a perfectly serviceable fire right there and you can use that for roasting. Others think that it might have been a prehistoric sauna along the lines of the Native American sweat lodges. I suppose that's possible. Or maybe they're just building fires on piles of rocks for cultural reasons, reasons that we are not privy to, and we're just reading too much into it. Who knows? But anyway, burnt mounds. They're popping up at around this time. And we're also seeing an increase in goldsmithing. For example, gold collars were appearing. These collars were fairly similar to torques. Remember the torques that we were talking about? Well, these were similar to that, except that they were wide and flat and obviously not braided. They're kind of like a crescent moon. Anyway, so that's what life was like for the Scots. And now we're moving forward in time and are entering the fascinating period with Clad Halan, that town we spoke about weeks ago that seemed to venerate and live with its dead for a period of time. A town that was built directly on top of a cemetery. Those facts seemed strange to us a few episodes ago, but now they seem more like a continuation of the culture that we've been getting to know. The culture that existed in Scotland for millennia. And in this town we find carefully buried corpses with attention to detail that clearly had meaning. But that meaning has been lost to time. For example, why were the bodies so often placed in the northeast corner of the houses? Why was one of the women buried holding two of her teeth in her hand? Why was a baby buried at the base of a post hole? And why was it carefully placed so that it faced the doorway? Clearly, the dead were still part of life for the villagers. But like the broken crucifix from last week, we really can't say specifically what they believed or why they buried their dead in such intricate and frankly intimate ways. From our perspective, it seems otherworldly, since we, like the Romans, prefer to distance ourselves from death as best as we can. But for these people, there seems to have been a different relationship one that was probably developing in Scotland for thousands of years. Now, as we come to the end of this period, let's look at what we've seen over the last several podcasts. We've seen a rise of agriculture. We've seen the spread of domesticated animals and of disease. We've seen the spread of trade and the cultural interaction that followed. We've seen the appearance of new religions and of impressive religious sites that would later spread to the rest of the island and even the continent.
We've seen receding populations, probably due to climate change, and later booming populations, probably due to new technologies and metalworking. We've seen the horrific working conditions that this new trade and material and technology brought to the population, and especially brought upon the children. And through all of this, we have seen a great Scottish agricultural society come of age. And then, in the 12th century BC, it came crashing down. In 1159 BC, Hecla, a volcano on Iceland, erupted in such an enormous and violent way that it seems to have immediately and substantially changed the weather. It's possible that the dust from the eruption was so voluminous that it dropped the temperature of Scotland for several years. We don't know how long it lasted, or whether it caused what was to follow, but suddenly Scotland's fields were abandoned. Agriculture was shunned by many farms in favor of livestock rearing, and in some areas it would take about a thousand years for cereal grains to once again be farmed. Some historians estimate that Scotland's population might have been cut in half during this period, but it wasn't just famine that would have caused the drop. We're also seeing a decline in the manufacture of farming implements and a corresponding increase in weaponry. Resources were taxed. It's not impossible that during these dark days, people turned on their neighbors in order to feed their families. So as we leave the Bronze Age, we are seeing a glimpse of what will come in the Iron Age. Violent, well-armed warlords. Okay, next week we're going to get into the Iron Age. That should be fun. As always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. You can also join us over at Facebook. It's facebook.com slash britishhistory. And we now have over 1,000 likes, which I really appreciate. And I say we keep going. So let's get to 2,000 likes. So if you can head over there and click the like button, you're going to get daily updates on British history. It's a lot of fun. Uh, You can also head over to the website, thebritishhistorypodcast.com, and there we've got a forum set up for you to interact with other listeners. And of course, members can access members-only material over at the forums as well. Anyway, I think that's about it. Thanks for listening.